Revelation 21, God's Word. It was written a long time ago, but the great joy of a divine author is that while it was written, I suspect, in 95, 96 AD for a fairly specific group of Christians there, it is certainly written with us in mind by the Spirit even this day. Hear God's Word, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, The faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. Had a great high wall with twelve gates, And at the gates, twelve angels, and on the gates, the names of the twelve tribes, the sons of Israel, were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. On the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. 
The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod. 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 44 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. (laughs) The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. Amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Let's ask God's blessing upon his word. Father in heaven, we have read your word. Now we come to the preaching of your word and we ask that you would give life and light. Your word is perfect, but we are not. Have mercy on us. In our weakness, for Christ's sake. Amen. Imagine, six months ago, we'll say, You're talking with a friend, and a friend's like, hey, i got to give you a tip. I know something's going to happen. February, March, April of next year of 2020, a crazy virus is going to sweep the globe, and it's going to shut down the entire world. What would you have done with your friend? You'd looked at him and been like, "Mm, yeah. Awesome. Did you have some bad Mexican? What do you, what do you, what, your stomach, stomach upside? You're having crazy dreams now, crazy visions? What are you thinking? Or if your friend had said, hey, you know what? Most of the American workforce is going to be impacted in some fashion. We'll be looking at the greatest unemployment stats that any of us have seen in our lifetime, uh, where again, substantial portions of the workforce will be laid off in the matter of a month. Where people will stay at home or be under stay-at-home orders or quarantine for four or six weeks. 
where it will get so bad that even the Californians have to freak out and ignore the government's rules to go out and invade the beaches because they're getting stir-crazy. Would you have believed them? Could you have believed them? I mean, I think that's one of the things most of us think about, I guess, most days. As we go about our days now, we're like, I can't believe. I mean, I mean how many times have you said it? I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe this is happening the way that it is. It's shocking. It's surprising that we would be in the circumstances that we're in. But now imagine that kind of same situation if you were the one with that kind of forward knowledge and trying to figure out how to explain it to a person in a way that emotionally they could understand it. For them to understand the emotion that the healthcare industry would uh, go through where so many of them would labor with extreme hours under extreme pressure with tremendous amount of fear placed in their heart over their perceived safety. Again, imagine stressing to the person you're trying to tell just the emotional turmoil that the country would go through as so many would lose income. We'd have to have a, a stimulus package to try to help folks. And imagine what we could kind of come up with if we talked about it as a group, if we were all here together and spent a Sunday school hours, that it would be easy for us to convey the information. It would be very difficult to convey the emotion. It would be very difficult for us to explain to our friend how, how just much anxiety could easily show up. That the constant kind of feeling of it just being surreal. We were talking this morning about it. It's bizarre preaching to a camera looking at me in the back in a largely empty room. It's hard to convey the the depth and fullness and richness of the emotions that we feel at any given moment. It's a challenge. It's certainly true when it's sad feelings. And I would suggest it's actually harder to even convey happy feelings. It's why most of the great songs are sad songs. It's easier to tell sad emotion than it is to tell happy emotion. And here we get to Revelation 21 where there's only happy All the sad is gone. All of the grief is gone. All of the sorrow is gone. All of the anxiety is gone. All of the difficulty is gone. It's only joy. It's only gladness. It's only peace and delight. And it's hard to communicate that. What happens here in chapter 21 is Jesus, perfectly uh, the Word of God incarnate, conveys it to John, who's now conveying it to us in the Spirit. This great and grand vision 
of the end. Of what all of history has been building to, what all of creation has been building to. The book of Revelation has, as we've said, like, almost like links in a chain, been telling the same story over and over and over again, where it tells of really from the resurrection until the second coming. That portion kind of over and over and over again. But here in 20 and 21, it's really begun to focus in on that second coming and what happens after. And 20 kind of rounded out the portrait, the Polaroid picture of uh, that judgment day. And 21 is what happens after. What happens after? What does it look like for the people of God? And even from the very beginning, it clues us in. Now, I'm going to suggest most of this chapter is in symbolic language, and you're going to see uh, hopefully along the way that that makes good sense to read it that way. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So he's already explained in chapter 20 that uh, the earth and the sky and the sea have been destroyed. They have been consumed and now being remade in uh, this new creation. The old is gone in the created order. The new has come. And in the midst of this new created order, in the midst of this newness of life, there is one dominating kind of feature of the geography, so to speak. Verse 2, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And it clues us in a little bit on what's taking place in this new creation, that the barrier between heavens and earth is not quite as clear as it is in our current created order. Our current created order, the, the barrier between heaven and earth is, is rather fixed. <laughs> it's very rare that anyone would be able to cross that barrier, and it only happens with divine superintendence and transport. Here, it seems to imply that it's a bit of a blurry line. And the holy city, the new Jerusalem, God's portrait of his church is coming down out of heaven, verse 2, arrayed, uh, prepared, adorned, dressed as that perfect, beautiful bride. Language we've heard uh, all throughout the book of Revelation hinted at, uh, prepared for, but now here it's arrived. This is that final, happy, joyful, delightful meeting. It's the end. It's the good part of the story. It's the happy ending. This is the happily ever after. And as we examine, I want to call your attention to one thing kind of first that I would suggest is probably a bit surprising for most of us. In fact, actually, it's probably so surprising we've never actually caught it, though many of us have read this chapter many times. 
The city descends from heaven. The new Jerusalem is this kind of graphic portrayal of the church and all of her victory and all of her purity and all of her delight now perfectly glorified and blessed by God, uh, returns from that waiting in heaven back placed upon earth, ready for the newness of life in the life to come. And the interesting thing is, is now at this part of the story, you would expect that John or Jesus would describe to us what's taking place. You would expect it to be in this past tense. I saw Jerusalem descend. I saw perfect victory. I saw joy. I saw delight. I saw every tear wiped away. I saw. The interesting thing is, that's not what takes place. When it comes time to understand the totality of the victory that God has given the church in verse 3, rather than seeing any of it, he hears it. God speaks. In fact, even clarifying, he speaks from the throne and explains all that is taking place. God himself. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And what God is doing here is is calling the reader's mind to actually think back to the very beginning. We have the Bible framed out with bookends that match. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, chapters 1 and 2, God makes for himself creation. He makes mankind as the pinnacle of that creation. He places them in his holy temple garden where he is in intimacy and knowledge and relationship with them. And he tells them to be fruitful and multiply, fill the entire earth and take his holy temple garden and expand it to the ends of the earth in that last two chapters. And everything between Genesis chapter 3 and really Revelation 20 is God's mission to glorify himself in the salvation of his people, correcting the evil of Genesis 3. Now in Revelation 21, we see his holy temple hinting back at this idea of the garden where God dwells with mankind. But what I would call your attention to is this idea that God's people are to be filled with peace because of the close connection between His Word and His deed. You see, when it comes time for the end to be here and for all of the bad to be undone, for all that is sad to be unmade, for all that is evil to be destroyed, God tells them about it. I think this is so intriguing that when it it comes time, this is the part that you would desperately want to see. 
And it's interesting that what God offers instead is a promise. In fact, actually, it's a series of promises. It's a promise that God and man will dwell together. It's a promise that all sorrows will be removed. It's a promise of His holy character and their holy character. It's a promise of His victory and their victory. Think about it, even in verse 5, as it continues, God continues speaking. This is the end. This is the happy ending that we were hoping for. And in essence, God narrates it instead of showing it. Behold, I am making all things new. And then to John, write this down. Look, you need to, you need to keep this so other people can read it. Write this down because it's trustworthy and true. This is the reality. It's done. God says, I am that Old Testament name. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give blessing. We give water to the thirsty. We'll destroy the wicked. I think this is an important thing for us to, to kind of stew on and meditate on for just a moment is this close relationship between the Word of God and the deeds, the actions of God. Because the thing is, <laughs> I think many of us, when we get sad or when we're discouraged or when we're overwhelmed or paralyzed with anxiety or things like that, we long to see the reality of it. Right? I, I can't wait to see the day where this coronavirus is done and all the people of God can be gathered together. I can't wait to see the day where my sin is gone and I'm not tempted to do evil anymore. I can't wait to see the day where I'll, I'll never lose my temper or never grow frustrated when I shouldn't or never say things that are not kind to my friends. I can't wait to see the day. And it's intriguing because what we're talking about there is that we have a hierarchy to our senses as humans. And for most people, it, not all, but for most people, it's the eyes that win. I mean, we even have a saying that helps us get this. Actions speak louder than words. I'll believe it when I see it. The interesting thing is that is not the priority that God has for his senses or for ours. For him, his actions and his words are so intimately connected that it's okay if you have one without the other. It's just as dependable. And so it's intriguing that when it comes time to interact with all the blessings of the end times, he's saying, look, it's already promised. Be at peace. And the intriguing thing is that for so many of us, even today, we know God's promises intellectually, but man, they get stuck somewhere between our head and our mouth or our mouth and our throat, and they don't make it down to our heart.
I mean, again, just think about your own emotional condition, your own spiritual condition over the last month. To think about how easily you've been kind of pushed into these positions of anxiety or fear instead of resting to say, look, we know God has promised that he does all things well. And God has promised that he does all things for our good if we love him, if we are called according uh, to his purpose, if our name's in the book of life. Yet interestingly, again, how many of us, we we know those promises, but yet we want to say to God, we want to kind of even in the back of our head say, well, the proof is in the pudding. I'll believe it when I see it, God. But maybe not until I do. And friends, that's unbelief is what that is. Because while we are humans, fallen humans with that lingering corruption in our heart, and we all have, in many cases, sometimes the best of intentions that never get followed through on. How many books do you have on your shelf that you started that, oh my, you want to read, but even now in a quarantine, you haven't? See, the difference is for God, His intention and His promises, intention and His action, they're all the same. He does it all. And the result of this is that if we have His promises, that's all we need to be at peace. Now, that's not all He's given us, but it's all we need. To know that God has said he will do it. Well, he will. I may not understand how. I may not understand when. I might not even recognize him when I see it. But he's going to do what he said he's going to do. God's people are called to have peace. Because of the connection between God's word and God's deed. Well, the next part I think here not, it challenges God's people not just for peace, but for joy. You're going to see actually love, joy, and peace all here. As now verse 9, you see the next Polaroid picture of the same thing. It's the same snapshot, but from a different angle perhaps, so to speak. Is it now an angel comes and whisks John away to show him the same sort of portrait. He sees the bride of the Lamb. He sees the church descending from heaven like a holy city. And this is where you again get to feel the language breaks down. It falls apart because John, as excellent of a vocabulary as he has, is just not good enough. I love how on separate occasions here twice he he says it looks like gold transparent like glass. Well, John, that's exactly not what gold is. Transparent as glass. But what he describes here is this joyful occasion of of God's people descending from heaven back to this new creation and the portrait of her beauty. Verse 11, she's clothed in the glory of God. Radiance like a rare jewel. Jasper again probably hinting at that point at just the sparkling brilliance of the church. Her beauty 
And the church is framed on the sides with these gates that he even tells us are symbolic portraits of the teaching of the apostles. What, what marks the church in? Well, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, that there is a belief set that is required to be a Christian. The reality is not everyone gets in, not everyone is part of this church. We invite everyone in. But the church is not one of those things that you can believe whatever you want and just be a part of it. Man, believe whatever you want to believe, it's fine. No. There's a specific belief set, that which is taught by the apostles. It frames out the sides of the church. That's the way in and out of the people of God is through, uh, namely the scriptures, through what uh, the apostles and the prophets have taught until we get to verse 15. And this is where the language gets really rough. The angel takes a measuring rod of gold and begins to measure the city, and it's, it's four square. Twelve thousand stadia. Its length and its width and its height are equal. He also measured the wall, one hundred forty-four cubits by measurement. The, I love that in the Greek. That language just, it doesn't exactly make sense. The verb's not exactly clear as to what it's talking about. It says the wall's basically seventy-two meters. We don't know if that's thick or high or deep or what. We we don't know. All we know is that if this city were actually built, the proportions don't fit. None of it fits right. Instead, what it's intended to capture is this large and imposing and overwhelming sort of kind of impression. Again, think the first time you were a kid and you went to a big city and saw the skyscrapers and just how large they looked. This one, though, is most intriguing is what the foundation is. Verse 18, this is the part where many of our ears began to tune out or your ears began to tune in to wait for me to mispronounce some sort of precious jewel. But instead, what's being described here is that the entire church, the entire city of God rests upon a foundation. And what is being described as that foundation is, in essence, the the ephod, the garment that the high priest would wear. So what you have is the portrait of a church that is clothed in the brilliance of the glory of God. That entrance is only permitted through the teaching of the apostles, through the scriptures, whose foundation is upon the high priest. The entire ministry, the entire existence of the church rests on the ministry of the high priest. And that's part of the beauty of that book of Hebrews that we looked at earlier is that we find out Jesus is that great high priest. The high priests of the Old Testament were special in their work, but it wasn't enough. It had to be done year after year after year after year. Offerings had to be continued. They had to be made over and over and over again. Jesus is the great high priest that offers himself once for all the saints. And that's it. It's done. It's finished. 
So whereas this first section challenges us to have peace because God's word and God's deed are so intimately linked, this second one challenges us to have joy because the entirety of the church rests upon the work of Christ. So that when we lie in bed at night and begin to think through our day or think through the last 50 years of life or whatever it is, we don't have to stew on our failings and our faults. We confess them to our high priest. We don't have to live in debilitating shame for the things that we've done. We confess them to our high priest. We don't have to worry about our standing before God if we are his child, if we are a saint. We confess our sins and rest in the deeds of that great high priest. I'll let you know a little secret. I've never once brought a perfectly good offering to God. Never once. The songs I sing are always with with a tainted heart. At best, I have that lingering corruption of sin. But interesting, that great high priest intercedes on my behalf and always gives God a perfect offering on my behalf. I mean, you probably think about that on Sunday morning worship. That's what's taking place here. I mean, realistically, there's a sense in which I don't really want Jesus bringing our worship to the Father as it stands. We want him bringing his worship to the Father. Sanctifying ours, bringing his. The entirety of the church rests on the ministry of Jesus. That's why when you read the New Testament and the apostles and their writing, everything, that was the hill they were willing to die on is the person and work of Jesus. You can't confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord. You will not be saved. And I recognize this is not a politically correct thing to say as we post this sermon on the internet. But there is only one way to heaven. And it's not you being a good person. It's not your neighbor being a good person. It's not believing in any religion as hard as you can. There's only one way to heaven, and his name is Jesus. And interestingly, the way that he has chosen to bring his people to heaven is not to receive their good works. It's to offer salvation to them. Free for them, cost him his life, but free to them. See, that's the beauty of what's taking place in the church here is is as John's reflecting on the church, it's all joy at this point because the foundation is secure. It's resting upon Jesus. She's clothed in beauty and clothed in glory because God has done this thing. Now, 
And then the last section. I think this is the most important because it tells us what the end goal is. I think for many of us, the end goal is we want to be happy. Or we want to, our kids to be happy. We want to give them a better life than we've had for ourselves. Or we want to have maybe pleasure. Or we want to avoid pain. Verses 22 through 27 frame out for the church what the, the real end goal is for the church. It's intimacy with God. I saw no temple in the city. That's a big deal. That here, this idea that God dwelling in specific location is removed, you don't need it because now God lives with mankind ever. Again, this idea of the garden has come back. It's His holy temple is the, is the place. It's the whole thing. It's where we are and He is. God dwells with man. There's no need for a temple. We're in His presence. There's no need for a sun or a moon. We're in His light. There's no need for night anymore. There's peace. There's no need for the unclean. There's holiness. It is perfect intimacy with God. And I would like to just very briefly challenge us with this. I think one of the great benefits that the, the quarantine time has given us is that it has removed a number of the blessings that we receive from being a part of the church from our lives. We don't, uh, you know, I haven't gotten hugs from you. I haven't gotten handshakes from you. Um, you know, we haven't been able to see each other face to face, most of us. Uh, we've been separated. And so many of the, the joys and the blessings and the benefits of being a part of the church have been taken away from us for a time. But I do wonder how many Americans, particularly, as we have drunk so deeply from the well of consumerism, how many of us have fallen in love with those benefits and forgotten? That the benefit, the one from which all others flow, is being in relationship with God Almighty. Not as an object of His wrath, but as an object of His love. Maybe we need to spend a bit of time contemplating we certainly have extra of it right now for many of us. You know, is our peace lacking because we're doubting God's promises? Is our joy weak because we're not resting upon the foundation of our mediator, Christ Jesus? Or even perhaps like the Hebrews have, has our love grown cold? Because we're not excited about intimacy with God anymore. We're only in it for His blessings. The good news is that God loves us so much 
But if that describes your condition or mine, he loves us so much, he will not let us stay that way forever. He will pursue us and even perfect us. May it be that we, his people, even now, use the time that he has given us to spend that hard labor of softening our heart and meeting with God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, how you are faithful and true. Forgive us for our hard-heartedness. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.